Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. The rational perspective indeed, and this being a Monday, it's a warm welcome to David Shapiro. David, you're looking uh, sprightly. Have you had your vaccine yet? Yeah, I did, Monday. 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 Well, I had mine today, and I must tell you, it was an experience, just like what Mark Barnes said to us last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fabulous experience, very efficient. I was at Discovery. They they know what they're doing at Discovery, don't they? Mm. I was there as well, and... uh, you know, they put out all the forces and you have to congratulate them because there was never a, a moment where you never knew what you were doing or where to go. And it just makes it so much easier mm. when things are under control. I don't mind waiting. In fact, I didn't wait. As long as I know that things are moving and it's un- and I'm in the right queue, you know, I'm not standing there aimlessly. But uh, it was painless as well. It really was. It's finished today, Dave. Um, we were down a little Mainly, we're coming down under quite a bit of pressure because of commodities. You know, China now deciding to clamp down on commodities or take out the speculation. So uh, it's it's weighed on on commodity shares. We saw Amplats and all the platinum shares under pressure. And also the big diversifiers have also been um, losing some ground. Alec, I'm, I'm not sure this is long-lasting. I think that uh, overall, I think the money that's going to be spent on infrastructure spend globally in many areas, I think is going to steady commodity somewhere down the line. But there, there was a bit, bit of froth in there. Global markets, on the other hand, are very strong. So we're going into a, a don't worry about inflation period again. I'm just looking on my right on the screen here. I see NASDAQ very, very strong now. So we're getting back to record uh, levels in the in the U.S. markets. Uh, quite a few markets were closed in um, in Europe today. But from our point of view, the big the big performers, the positive performers, we saw Naspers pick up, and we also saw Richmond. Richmond keeps heading to new highs on those very very good results. Let's uh, let's try Ivan Saltzman now. Ivan, can you hear us clearly? Yes, I can hear you. It's much better on the. You you released your financial results last week. The performance of Discam has been quite extraordinary. Uh, you were our pharmacist in Mondio, uh, and when you opened your very first discam. What, what got you to do that with your wife, who I was, I was interested to see is still, she, you opened it together. She's the managing yeah. director. You're the CEO. Yeah. So it's very much right. a family business. Right. My, my two sons are in it as well. Um, we, you, you want to know, there's, there's no secret, there's no secrets, there's no secrets. We, we, we just took opportunity after opportunity. Um, and we made sure that, that we better down each opportunity before we went on to the next. Only, only as a, as a public company are, are we using a small amount of debt. But, but until we listed, we virtually had no debt. So explain that before you, uh, because I think you only had Mondial for about six years before you got your second pharmacy. No, uh, uh, no it was about three and a half to four. Um, we, we opened in Rampock Ridge, and there, there was a progression of different size shops. We moved bigger to bigger. Then we had two shops, and we combined into one big shop, and that shop got bigger. Um, then we got the second one in Mondial, but, but that was only store number five, I think. That was about six years later or seven years later. And, and what took you into that, into expanding? Because up until that point, most pharmacies uh, were single owners. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I did because I could. I, I have a hardworking wife. And between us, we could do two pharmacies, and then with the children, we we had uh, employees, and then I took on partners. I, I took on partners. There were three of us uh, managing five five stores. They were minority partners. One is still with me after all the years. The the other one cashed in after we listed, and uh, that's how we grew. And when you uh, have a look at uh, at the, the 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 whole COVID issue of the last twelve months, how has that impacted you? And I ask this because many are looking at the uh, the move 
COVID causing a, uh, an accelerated move towards digital? Yes, but but we have expanded digital exponentially, but it's still it, 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 it's it's still not it, it's still hovering around one percent. Um, but but digitally, we we've enhanced our um, offering on on click and collect, and and people order their medicines uh, through 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 apps. Um, we we targeting twenty percent of our repeat business, we, which we should get in a year or two. Um, only where that people won't come into the pharmacy, we 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 will deliver within a fifteen kilometer radius, or they can collect it and there's no waiting. What's next um, for the for the group now? You've uh, you you made more than a billion rand in operating profit in the past year to the end of February. Where do you go to from here? Well, we just go on and on, I suppose. Um, maybe not by myself, but but we have a we have a great team now. Um, and uh, yeah. Ivan Saltzman is the chief executive and founder of Diskim. Before we let you go, Ivan, have you got any thoughts, uh, given uh, the entrepreneurial ride that you've had, any thoughts for young entrepreneurs who are coming up in South Africa? Are you, A, confident about the country, and B, uh, can you pass on any recommendations or any tips to them? Well, in my case, I stuck to the knitting. I did what I know. And I kept doing it over and over. I was successful and we had one formula and we just kept at the same formula uh, and grew and grew and grew. Of course now we diversified, but, but before we could diversify, we, 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 we grew on the basis of pharmacy first. Pharmacy was our business and still is our, our main business. Um, a lot of people have got a scattering of that they, they want to get rich quickly. They 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 take on everything and everything that and anything that comes the their way, in, instead of just sticking to what they do well. So it's all about focus. The focus. I think that's how you'd sum it up. Uh, just uh, one last uh, issue. Pick and pay went into the pharmacy game quite aggressively and has recently departed. Did that surprise you? Not at all. Um, it's very difficult to run a retail business without a wholesaler backing. They, they just didn't do that extra step of, of, of securing a, a wholesaler. There's very little money on the retail side of, of, of medicine. But if you have the whole chain, it, it, it makes it worthwhile. Okay, David, I know that, uh, uh, or Stuart tells me, he popped in here and he said you were struggling to hear all of that. But in essence, he said just stick to your knitting. Uh, that's the best way to uh, be successful in business. Now, uh, I, I guess you can't really top that for advice. If you go into a disc game store, You'll see, um, you know, you'll see how well organized they are and getting more organized. I think the one thing that came through the results now, you're starting to see the efficiency drive coming through. You know, they're, they were relatively new on the market. And as you say, back in 1978, that's when they started. But, uh, um, I think a very good result. And I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see earnings uh, escalate from these levels. They still got plenty of room to expand in the various areas that they want, the big stores and uh, the much smaller stores. So, um, I, you know, just just watch the space. A little expensive relative to earnings, but I think uh, we can live with that. You know, you can live with that with good companies. We welcome now Dr. Leon Schreiber. Uh, he's from the Democratic Alliance. And, Leon, you are you got the bit between the teeth. Uh, on the whole of CADA deployment. Now we've, David and I have spoken CADA deployment many times. I, I think that it's probably uh, one of the more popular dinner party conversations. Uh, and yet our ruling political party is sticking with it. You, uh, just tell us what it is that you want from the ANC on CADA deployment and how you intend getting it. 
Yes, Alec, I'd just like to check first. Can you actually hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Uh, We finally got the the tech right. I apologize. (laughs) It's great to be here and good evening to everyone. Um, Yes, indeed. I think that's probably a nice metaphor for how how I view this matter as well. Um, As you may know, I've I've been in Parliament for about two years now. And and one of the things that I've, I've really wanted to focus on is getting to the heart of why uh, we've seen such a decline in state capacity in South Africa. And that's a conversation that you really cannot have without a focus on cater deployment. And, and what cater deployment is really code for is the politicization of the civil service. That's what it's really about. Um, and, you know, what we are asking now the court to uh, help us with is to get hold of the records of decisions, uh, minutes of meetings, and any other records that may exist, uh, including we've, we've, we've made it wide. We've asked for WhatsApp conversations in groups, email uh, threads, where members of the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee actually discuss uh, these various deployments uh, and also communicate their decisions critically to selection panels or appointing authorities in the state. Now, we've asked the ANC earlier this year to provide us with this information in terms of the Promotion of Access to Information Act, um, they refuse to do so, and that's why we know, now have no choice but to go to the court and ask the court to consider the, 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 the clear public interest that exists in the decisions that are taken by the Cater Deployment Committee, which, of course, was headed by President Ramaphosa uh, between 2013 and 2017. But it was uh, it, it predates him, though. It, it certainly went back a lot earlier than that. Yes, it does. I mean, it goes back all the way to the Mafikeng conference in 1997, where the ANC, uh, I mean, one thing you have to, to give them, they've never hidden their intentions when it came to this. They made it very clear that they want to use cater deployment to obtain control of all levers of power in the state. That's a direct quote. And they go on to list everything from the bureaucracy, the police, the state-owned enterprises, public broadcast, etc. So it is indeed a long-standing practice, but... We are at a moment in our history where we're trying to confront state capture. I think there are many people who are sincerely trying to grapple with how it came to be and how we can avoid uh, a repeat uh, or an escalation going further, I think is the better term. And uh, the reality is that state capture really came onto the map from about 2013 onwards. And that is exactly the period that correlates with President Ramaphosa's chairmanship. So it's frankly a bit fantastical for him to claim that he was not aware of any of these appointments as he did in front of the Zondo Commission. So that's why it's so important for us. If there's hard, hard evidence, we need to check whether he was aware because there, sh- there could be records of that. Mm. Uh, the whole cater deployment movement seemed to begin when one of the leading ANC uh, caters said that I didn't join the struggle to be poor. And mm. that is infiltrated through a, a political party that presumably should be there to serve the people. So I guess if you could get uh, information on this, it might expose uh, two people within that party that the path they've been on is not really in the best interests of the country. Yes, and I think in, critically, I mean, it, it, is an, it is a matter of, of public interest. I think South Africans have a right to know what the role was of a committee that uh, we can only imagine meets in some kind of smoke-filled back rooms in Lutuli House and, and comes up with decisions like uh, Dudu Mieni's appointment, Claudio Motsuneng's appointment, Brian Mulefe, Arthur Fraser, uh, Sean Abrams. I mean, the list is endless. And uh, we have a right to know what the influence of the ANC was and what the reasons were for them to appoint people who turned out to be so fantastically corrupt uh, and I think that's where the um, the court case itself is going to get interesting, Alex, because uh, the court will have to use perhaps a section of PIA that hasn't been used before, at least to my knowledge, which says that private organizations can be compelled to provide information uh, under certain circumstances, including, of course, if it is in the public interest or if it influences uh, public decision-making. What exactly is CADA deployment? Well, like I said earlier, I think it's basically uh, uh, another word for for deliberately politicizing the civil service. So the idea that you would appoint people to run the state, 
I'm not talking here about political office. You know, people sometimes uh, deliberately, I think, as the president did in front of Judge Zondo, conflate the two. It's, of course, completely normal in a democracy for a political party that, that gains political mm-hmm. power to make political appointments, including the president, the cabinet, uh, and certain other positions. But what Cato deployment does is it actually gives the political party, in this case the ANC, the power to extend its political influence into the civil service, into state-owned enterprises, which are supposed to be staffed by professionals. Uh, we're talking about health departments. Mm-hmm. Um, should be staffed by people who know something about healthcare. Uh, uh, you know, infrastructure mm-hmm. departments should be staffed by people who know something about infrastructure. Instead, cadre deployment means that those people are appointed on the basis of their loyalty to the ANC rather than on their ability to do the job. And I think the evidence of what that leads to is, is all around us today. And interestingly, I would even say evidence um, that proves the point, the, the exception that proves the point is probably the Western Cape, where the, the DA does not have a cadre deployment policy, where we leave it to those people in government to appoint people on the basis of merit as far as humanly possible. And the consequences are there to see in better service delivery. So I think it's a very clear-cut case And this court case now gives South Africans a real opportunity, should we win it, to get real insights into how this system actually operates uh, behind closed doors. Will it matter, though? Will it change anything? That's, of course, the the, the million-dollar question. And and I've been asked a couple of times now, what's the end goal here? Um, I am unashamed to say the end goal is to to kneecap cater deployment. We need to get rid of the system. Whether this one court case on its own is enough to do that, uh, I can't say or promise. But, uh, you know, we are certainly pursuing it with all the energy and vigor that we've got. We've got an end-cater deployment bill that's currently going through Parliament, which will uh, put in place requirements for merit-based appointments and make it illegal for people who hold political office to be appointed in civil service positions. Um, So I think what you're looking at is probably a longer and bigger uh, campaign that's needed. However, I do think the Zondo Commission gives us uh, perhaps a once-in-a-generation opportunity to confront this because should we get hold of this information and uh, hopefully um, you know, feed that through the appropriate channels and should the Zondo Commission come to the same conclusion that we do and make recommendations around the role of cadre deployment in, in facilitating state capture, then I think there is a window of opportunity now. It's not a big one, and I wouldn't lie to people about that, but... Uh, the combination of our bill, this court case, and the Zondo Commission revelations give us an opportunity, if we put enough pressure on on the government and on the state and on the ANC, uh, to perhaps finally start doing something about this. David? Yeah, the question to Leon is, has this gone beyond um, you know, uh, institutions or political institutions has this not bled through to the private sector as well? Isn't it entrenched there as well through the policies that they introduced virtually at the same time, which is under the guise of BEE? And I'm not criticizing BEE. I'm only criticizing that it seemed to be a very elite number of people who, who also have political connections that ended up, um, you know, that ended up enormously wealthy. Um, so it seems to have gone right through the whole of, of South Africa and many other areas. And to unravel this is going to be extremely difficult. Yes, I, I agree with you, David. And I, I would actually be more bold in making, in making that connection. Um, as I say, if you go back and look, uh, as I've done very seriously at the ANC's policy documents, its resolutions that it's taken over the years, it's been very clear about uh, its desire to to control the levers of power in society, not just in the state. Mm-hmm. I think it's obviously been easier through cadre deployment and because they do control uh, government uh, that they've been able to infiltrate the state in this way with political or politicization. Mm-hmm. But I think B is a critical uh, twin to this policy, mm-hmm. uh, which, which has given it similar influence, perhaps not at the same scale yet, in the private sector, uh, because we all know that BEE is, a, is an elite er- enrichment project. And, mm-hmm. and it is, you know, it, it mirrors perfectly what has happened in the public sector. Uh, and I think that uh, you're absolutely right to, to draw the link between the two. 
So that's why I say this is not uh, by any means the end of, of, of a fight to try and get to a place where we can have not only a professional public service, but also a, a private sector that's free from, from state influence. Um, but I think certainly it's an important first step. And, and hopefully if we can get some momentum going, uh, then we should uh, be looking at that uh, as well in, in all spheres of society. So what's the process from here? How long does the court action take and when will we see some developments from it? I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. We're hoping to file by Wednesday or Thursday um, in the South Gauteng High Court, and then it really will be in, in the court's um, hands. So, so we won't, I really won't be able to say that. What I can say is that we are committed to pursuing this as far as it needs to go. We, of course, know that the ANC is facing a severe financial crisis, ironically, uh, and I do think it says a lot that they would they're so determined to hide this information that they would go through a costly and, you know, potentially very expensive court process to try and hide these documents rather than simply complying with the application which we sent uh, months ago. And I think that's perhaps an important point. As you see the court processes play out, why on earth would you be so determined to hide this unless there is something to hide uh, and unless, uh, you know, as Kweri uh, Mantashe uh, tried to pretend in front of the Zonda Commission that it's this innocuous uh, system uh, and really doesn't do any damage, then why wouldn't you just give us what we're asking for? You know, dispel the rumors <laughs> once and for all. Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious because if you are a beneficiary of CADA deployment, you would not want that to be known. Your staff yeah. would look at you differently thereafter. And there's also a critical point, if I may, on that. I, I received an email today from a, a, a black professional who said that he'd heard one of my interviews on this matter and uh, I mean, if, if you can see emotion through an email, I saw that today. It's someone who has, has applied for, for, for positions in the state and just hasn't gotten a job. And, and, and that's the other side of this coin is that there are so many qualified South Africans who are eager to do, you know, public service in the best sense of the word, who never get employed in the state and who never get the, the promotion and the recognition that they deserve because those positions at the top are reserved for cadres and people who are loyal to promoting the ANC's project rather than doing what's best for South Africa. So, yes, there's the beneficiaries of the policy on the one hand, but then there are the you know, thousands of, and thousands of, of professional South Africans who, who are not serving the people because of a policy that locks them out. And I think that's a major tragedy for our country. Leon Schreiber is with the Democratic Alliance, and uh, he's taking on the whole or the cudgels against CADA deployment, which, oh, David Shapiro, we've, we've been talking about it so long, you almost wonder if, it, if, if Leon's uh, a Don Quixote tilting at windmills, but at least someone needs to be doing it. Oh, we have to do it for our survival. Something has to change. We know it can't continue. And, I mean, uh, you know, let it continue along these lines. Uh, we're already down and out. We're already battling. It can't, you know, it, it's, there's, there's not much further we can go. Uh, three, three notches below, um, wherever we are. Investment <laughs> grade. Investment grades, grade. whoa, in the distance. No, isn't it? It's like, it's like the other end of the, of the horizon, but who knows? We're in dreamland. We, we got to start working in the right direction mm. at some point. David Shapiro, thanks again to Leon Schreiber from the Democratic Alliance. Well, it's the top of the hour, which means it's time for our news update from our editor at large, Jackie Cameron. South Africa's government spent 49 billion rand on contracts linked to the Gupta family. This is the estimate compiled by Shadow World Investigations, a London-based non-governmental organization. It shared these details with the judicial inquiry into state capture on Monday in Johannesburg. The Guptas and Zuma have denied any wrongdoing. South Africa's biggest healthcare service provider, Netcare, has reported a 62% drop in profit for the six months to March the 31st. Adjusted headline earnings per share, which is the main profit measure for South African companies, fell to 27 rand 30 from 71 rand 70 in the same period a year earlier. Telcom has promised to revise its plans to suspend its dividend after it reported a jump in annual profit. The partially state-owned operator had announced it would suspend dividends for three years from the 2021 financial year. This was in order to conserve cash for radio frequency spectrum auctions and other expenditure but a new policy will now be announced at its interim results in November.
The South African rand extended its gains on Monday. It passed the 18-month best reached on Friday as the currency drew strength from ratings agencies holding the country's credit rating and outlook at current levels. Three researchers from China's Wuhan Institute of Virology became sick enough in November 2019 that they sought hospital care. This is according to a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report that could add weight to growing calls for a fuller probe of whether the COVID-19 virus may have escaped from the laboratory. The disclosure of the number of researchers, the timing of their illnesses and their hospital visits come on the eve of a meeting of the World Health Organization's decision-making body, which is expected to discuss the next phase of an investigation into COVID-19's origins. That's according to BizNews premium partner, The Wall Street Journal. And that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, do visit biznewsradio.com. Well, it's time now for our market report. Bradrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart has got the markets today. Hi, Nadia. Six thousand Telcom was up by four and a half percent to forty four Rand per share. Discam was up by almost four percent to twenty eight Rand sixty per share. Northern was down by just over five percent to two hundred and twenty one Rand per share, and Investic Limited was down by four and a half percent to fifty two Rand per share. In the currency markets, the Rand was slightly stronger against all the major currencies to thirteen Rand ninety two to the dollar, nineteen Rand seventy to the pound and 17 rand to the euro. Gold is steady at $1,885 an ounce. Brent crude is higher at $68 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 522,000 rand a Bitcoin. Uh, hang on a minute. Now, now let's, let's just get that Bitcoin right. Uh, we were, I think you said on Friday, it had, uh, oh, well, we saw on, on Thursday it had gone to what, 580, and then it came back to 520. It's all over the place, Nadia. Yeah, it's crazy. And even in the like 20 minutes that I was just sort of refreshing, it was up and down by about 8,000 rand. <laughs> it's crazy. So David Shapiro, uh, who is not punting Bitcoin, I hope, uh, the, the, the Shapiro family fortunes uninfluenced. But what about the, the, the people who are playing on that market? Very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's up and down. This is not for faint hearted people. And, and sadly, it does have some consequences where I think all the hype that was around it sucked so many, um, newcomers at those very high levels, those people who wanted to, you know, get rich quickly. And unfortunately, they're the ones who are taking the biggest knock now. So, uh, I remember Justin was the last time, I think a week or two ago, uh, Justin was talking about 800,000. 900. Rand. It was over 900,000 rand of Bitcoin. Gee, what a story. Uh, Nadia, you also mentioned Discam. Well, apart from the technical issues uh, that we had in trying to get Ivan Saltzman on, we did eventually get him on, thankfully. Uh, I see the share price was up today. Yes, by, I think it was what, 4%. That's, yeah. that's a significant uh, move. Dave, why would it come so late? Um, results Friday. You know, I think people had a chance to go through the results. You know, Alec, you know, when results are published, you get three, four, five, six, you know, how many hundreds of pages of numbers. It takes time to actually get through that and understand how they're doing and where they're going. So I think once a presentation was made, um, uh, you know, pe- people took a step back and uh, looked at it, liked what they've seen, and um, you know, started to buy. So I think they, when I say turn the corner, that's unfair because they're doing well. But I think they're pointing, as I mentioned earlier, I think starting to point in a new direction. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs match life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, we've got uh, Gideon Jaber to tell us all about the new gun regulations, and then we'll be talking to Chris Hatting about the national health insurance. That's coming up in the next half hour. But while we're on markets, let's pick up with Jackie Cameron and uh, what's going on with the RAND. This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. (laughs) 
On this week's Currency Focus, we take a look at why the South African Rand is the best-performing emerging markets currency and what's likely to happen to the unit this week. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Joining me today is Andre Celia of Treasury One. He's a currency strategist at Treasury One. Andre, it's been another very interesting week for the Rand. Yes, it's been an interesting one. We broke through the 14 level. We went as low as 13.88 on Friday. I think it had something to do with the expectancy of ratings agencies coming out with their reports, and they came out quite early. But I think in anticipation of that, we had a bit of a rally. But it's also got a lot to do with interest rates and the movement of interest rates in America and the tapering or the non-tapering of quantitative easing, the movement in yields. I also want to say that there's a bit of a battle of the giants that's starting to take place in the sense that we're also seeing some nice pockets of growth out of the European Union. Their uh, vaccination program has really come off the ground quite well. They Markets are opening up. Some of the lockdowns has been removed. It's getting into the summer period. And we're seeing some, some nice pockets of growth. And that's why I sort of, with a smile on the face, speak about the battle of the giants. You know, who's going to grow the quickest and the fastest? And what's the impact of that on the value of the dollar and the value of the euro? And how does that growth in Europe feed into the value of the rand? We are trading with various countries throughout the world, and we've got a lot of trade with the European Union, and especially on our citrus side, for instance. You know, there's a lot of our uh, citrus that goes into the European Union, but a lot of other trade as well. And if their economy is growing, it bodes well for our exports towards the European Union, and it also bodes well for if the demand comes out of Europe, it might also be good for pricing, because you could see prices, apart from demand being lifted slightly, because of the growth could also be that there's a bit of an increase in pricing, which is well for the exporters from South Africa and our trade of terms then. A number of analysts in South Africa have pointed to some sort of optimism about the South African economy showing signs of improvement, and they attribute this to the improvement in the value of the rand. Where do you sit in relation to that argument? Well, we are seeing some improvement in the economy, and we have seen last week during the Monetary Policy Committee of the South African Reserve Bank and the press conference after that, that they've also revised the growth figures slightly higher for South Africa. There's a few things this week that can upset the apple car, but I don't think it will, and I think we will have a fairly stable week trading between 1390, 14.20 at the top. You are listening to Andre Celia, currency strategist at Treasury One. For more of his insights, do go to biznewsradio.com where you can listen to the full interview. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biznews. Uh, welcome now to Hirion Jaber. Uh, as I mentioned right at the top of the program, Hirion, we've spoken with you about guns. Uh, just as a, a little aside, I think this is, according to Twitter, David Shapiro, the twentieth anniversary of uh, of your your run where you had your shoes taken uh, early in the morning. Tell us that story. <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's at twenty years to date. I went for a run, hop past five in the morning, and I think um, I was in the I was in the Waverley area. It was pitch black. It was cold, so I was dressed in a beanie and gloves and everything like that. And I think what happened is that there were two motor cars I saw ahead of me, but I think they had planned a hijacking, and I came trotting along. And they couldn't do the, you know, they couldn't hijack because I was there in the way. And uh, anyway, they drove past me, turned around, and came back at me. And four chaps got out with uh, one had a, a, you know, a gun. And um, they, 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 they started to hustle me. I said, well, I've got nothing. I'm on a run. You know, what do you want to take from me? And at the end of the day, they, they stripped me down to uh, my shorts and a T-shirt and told me to run away and not look back, which I did. But I'd seen a lot of movies, so I said, you're not going to shoot me. And I was zigzagging along <laughs> and ended up <laughs> at the Bramley police station, who thought at 6 o'clock in the morning I'd come to make an insurance claim, you know, standing there in T-shirt and uh, shorts. Anyway. Gideon, you had something uh, similar in your story, mm-hmm. although it was uh, a bit more violent than that. Uh, yes, my hijacking on Easter weekend in, well, it was a hijacking kidnapping in Easter weekend 2007. 
where I essentially had to bail out of a moving vehicle. And miraculously, they did recover my car. It only took about a month to get it out of the, the pound. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think policing has improved in South Africa since then. In fact, if I look at the statistics, since 2011, we've had an increase in our homicide rate every single year. So it's been a decade of that. We have uh, sexual violence and rape uh, cases reported at about forty to fifty thousand a year, and uh, considering the the generally accepted, uh, I'm going to call it a fact in inverted commas, that the, this is a horrendously underreported statistics, it would be significantly worse than that. The police budget, unless uh, I'm getting it wrong, has been cut for three consecutive years, where the VIP protection budget has been increased, uh, which tells you where those priorities seem to lie, and. Uh, yeah, the, the trio of violent interpersonal crimes have been increasing year and year, yet it's in this this bizarre sort of ambience of increasing violent crime and, and a complete dysfunctional police uh, organ that the government now proposes to remove from citizens the ability to defend themselves with firearms legally, as well as launching simultaneously an attack on hunters and sports shooters as well. So it's it's a it's a it's a major Problem. You know, I'm not crazy about going over these kind of uh, calls, but in the context of what's being proposed, it does seem uh, rather strange. Now, what is what is the gun lobby? And I know you're a member of that, Gideon, if not the leader of it. What is the gun lobby proposing uh, happens here? Well, I'm definitely not the leader, but I'm a cog in the wheel. And it's at the moment uh, the... Entire, the bill in its entirety is just being studied a bit more in depth because there's a lot in there and almost all of it is terrible. Uh, and this is apart from the factual inaccuracies uh, where the supporting documentation of the bill actually claim that people are issued foreign licenses without having to do their competencies first, which is uh, not correct. I mean, if you want a license in this country, you have to by law do your competency. So I don't know how that man- managed to get in there, but What's happening is there are a broad number of organizations independently taking this on, but there is coordination between them. And I'm talking about disparate ones, such as Gun Owners SA, the sport, uh, the sport organizations, the hunting organizations, AFRI Forum, the Institute of Race Relations wants to get involved. Um, the Free Market Foundation has indicated that they're also willing to, to uh, put their, their contributions in there. And I've had strange, uh, the taxi associations are not taking to this kindly. And I've had uh, members of the MK Military Veterans Association, their self-defense units, reach out to me, and they are busy discussing it in their mother organization as well, that they are bitterly unhappy with it. And, I mean, it's a bit more revolutionary language where they say that they they did not uh, make the sacrifices to have the fruits of liberation just removed from them by the ruling party like this, in the sense that gun control has a very racist history in SA. It came with colonialism for the sole purpose of disarming black Africans so that they could be more easily oppressed. And that was, this was expanded significantly under apartheid. So post-94 was really the first time where a black South African could legally license and own a firearm without the state trying to take it from them. So there's a, a lot of emotion and a lot of um, energy in this. It is so interesting when you have a look at the the broad population in South Africa. It's a very conservative, we're a very conservative nation in many, many, many ways. We go to church uh, or or to uh, you know, follow our religious, our religious leanings. Uh, and part of that seems to be Abur and Seirur, but not just uh, on the Afrikaans <laughs> community, but elsewhere. So I, I, I'll tell you something that, that got me wanting to talk to you today. Over the weekend, uh, where I live, uh, about two streets away, there was a shootout, uh, and a, one of the robbers was killed by the SAP. Uh, but you could hear it very clearly. Quarter past ten in the evening, there were a, a number of gunshots. So that is the issue. It was the SAP that, that, uh, that got the robbers, but one wonders if the homeowner had had his own firearm, what would have happened? It could have been uh, more tragic on their side. So I suppose that's, the other side of the story, if you've got a gun and somebody comes at you with a gun, you better know how to use it. And that's also what, what is the major problem with this bill is um, the the understated importance of the sports shooting fraternity 
is that that is one of the key foundations of maintaining and enhancing proficiency, competency, safety, uh, and and everything that's required to be a responsible and highly skilled firearm owner is people participate in these sports, not just because they're enjoyable, but because it's a a practical manner in order to, to develop real skills. The fact that is being proposed at the moment uh, by this bill makes sports shooting almost impossible to participate in, which would kill that segment off entirely, which bizarrely goes against the spirit of the bill in its original preamble, which means, sure, restrict firearms to people who have proven to be responsible and make them go through a whole proficiency process in order to display the bare minimum level of competence. But now that you want to enhance competence, we're not going to allow you to do that. So we'd prefer to keep you incompetent, unsafe, and stupid, as opposed to allow you the opportunity to develop. And that, yeah, that was something that struck me as utterly bizarre of this. David, you might remember in the last election, Kanthan Pillay and his purple cow, the capitalist party, one of their, <laughs> uh, shame, they didn't get a seat in parliament, but they got a lot of votes. Uh, and one of their cornerstone policies was teach young girls how to shoot, and then if anybody tried to rape them, and we know we've got an incredible rape issue in South Africa, they, they would think twice because you'd have a young girl who might actually pop you. Uh, would you go, get on? And I know David's kind of chuckling at it, but would you go as far as, as saying that that in a violent society uh, you need to protect people in that way, or is that uh, just violence begetting violence? I, I think... To be, to be honest, the violence exists, and it unfortunately isn't going away. We've tried for at least two to three decades to create societal change, which is definitely a very difficult generalization, generational thing to achieve. But in the interim, that isn't going to stop the, the, the violent predators in our society from doing what they do. However, and this is something I keep telling to people, you are always the first responder to your personal emergency. Nobody else is going to be there before you. And what you are capable of doing in those those crucial seconds, while it's going to take the responding authorities minutes to get there, what you do in those seconds can quite literally make the difference between life and death. And if you, it starts with your mindset, not with the tools, but the tools follow. And if you have the right mindset to say, my life is worth defending and, and, and I'm willing to go to extreme lengths to make sure that I get home safely to the people who, who care about me and keep them safe in turn, and then you apply skills with the correct tools, that makes you a formidably hard target for a two-legged predator to, to just do what they will. And since we're on the vaccine thing and, and the importance of herd immunity, you create enough hard targets in society, you almost create a type of herd immunity against the virus of violent confrontational crime. Chris Hatting is with the Free Market Foundation. Chris, I see uh, while mm-hmm. Gideon's been talking, you nodded your head. We, we didn't really want to talk to you about guns, but more about the national health insurance story saga uh, discussion in Parliament that uh, they should be able to acquire uh, the 90 billion rand that is sitting in medical schemes. Uh, but on guns, uh, does the Free Market Foundation f- uh, support uh, this idea of being able to or being allowed to arm yourself? Yeah, I think being able to arm yourself is a cornerstone of any properly liberal democracy that would consider individual rights to be important. So part of what we would consider to be a good state would be one that can protect citizens' lives, and if it can't do that, then citizens should have every ability to arm themselves. This doesn't mean that we think, for example, every citizen should have a nuclear device in their home, so we can have that sort of discussion <laughs> with the anarchists, but uh, I, I agree very much that this sort of this this kind of legislation in the works makes one very concerned about people's future security and safety. And, of course, again, it affects low- and middle-income people the most. Uh, for other people, they can go overseas, they can afford, well, if you have the right political connections, you can afford VIP protections, protection services. But if you if you can't afford that, then you're at the sort of mercy of the criminal. That is interesting, and, and it's something that is not often raised. If you have a blue light brigade or if you are living behind high walls and, as you say, you're well protected, it's almost as though you are removed from the society or the constituents that you're serving. And perhaps if, if that were not the case, uh, the politicians who are promoting this bill might be looking at it differently, or, or am I getting that wrong? 
No, I think you hit on an important point, and this is something that I've tried to highlight a lot in the last few years, now that we talk so much about state capture and corruption. The more you mix politics and economics, the more it becomes a case of you can afford the necessary services and the necessary goods if you have the right political connections. It's not really a case of economic activity. It's not a case of services and goods anymore. It's simply about who you know, not as much as what you do and what services you provide. So I think you're you're hitting on something quite deep there, and I think it's important to highlight that in all of these issues. So as you say, the gun issue, we've got NHI. All of it ultimately points back to the National Democratic Revolution, the guiding ideology of the governing party, and believing that they should control all the levers of state and that citizens should rely on them for for everything. When the citizens can't do that anymore, I think it's deeply immoral to, for example, remove something like the right to gun ownership. What about NHI and the the proposal, hopefully it's just kite flying, that uh, all of the medical schemes get nationalized, all of the money in the medical schemes get used to support, for a period anyway, the National Health Insurance Initiative? Uh, I wish we, we had Franz Cronier from the RR on so he could sketch the different scenarios of where the NHI will happen or not. I think you touch on there, it might simply just be to sort of see where the climate of opinion goes, the discussion kind of thing, now voicing these suggestions. I think the state very much wants to be in charge of all healthcare. It believes it should provide healthcare to all of us. Um, it should be at the center. Medical schemes take away from the control that the state might have, private hospitals, that kind of thing, ultimately. It's all, it's all couched in very noble and altruistic language. Uh, everyone should have access to quality healthcare, that kind of thing, but uh, sort of fancy words can only take you so far when you run into reality. South Africa's debt-to-GDP to ratio is approaching probably 86% at this point. We'll probably hit 100% in the next two or three years at the current pace with government spending being what it is. Um, and the NHI will simply create another state-owned enterprise that the state will have to pay back the debt on. There's no guarantee that the NHI will function any better than the other SOEs. I think it's it's a fool's errand, as it were. I don't think the capacity exists within the Department of Health to really administer an effective NHI. If we if we had a different sort of competency in the country, we could talk about, you know, whether it can actually run effectively or not. But at this point, I think it's folly to think you nationalize the management of all healthcare services in the hands of the state, and then it's going to increase um, services service delivery for all South Africans again we run back into the problem of lower and middle income citizens who who are forced to stay in South Africa. They don't have a choice about whether they can go overseas, but politicians and those who are well-connected can go to Dubai and other countries to get the health care that they need. David? You know, just listening to Chris, I think the pandemic has taught us, you know, who we can rely on. And I think if we look at NetCare, you go and see how NetCare handled. The results were out today. Um, 32,000 patients and uh, a comprehensive list of what they did. And certainly I had an, uh, the unfortunate uh, issue with my brother who was taken, uh, you know, who was there. Unfortunately, he passed away. But I cannot fault NetCare or the doctors there for how they tried. And you saw the, the level of service, the level of dedication was just remarkable. And you saw today with uh, your vaccination, with Discovery, how well organized, how many people were there, how you knew what to do. And I think you cannot work, you know, you cannot move away from what the private sector can do. And why not build on it instead of trying to replicate it or trying to mimic it and force people in the other direction? I just, it just does not make sense to me. But Chris, why not? Surely uh, we heard a little earlier in the program uh, from Leon Schreiber that this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity with a Zondo commission, that eyes have been opened to what catered <coughs> deployment and state capture actually costs, costs all of us. If you take it one step further, you look at what's happened at state-owned enterprises, 450 billion rand in debt at Eskom, which heaven knows how we're going to repay that. Isn't this also a generational opportunity for South Africans to wipe the sleep out of their eyes and see that these policies have not worked and that doubling down on them is a huge gamble. No, of course. And that's one of, I, I guess if you can solve this question for me, you'll, you'll solve all the challenges that the FMF faces in terms of advocacy. How does one balance very abstract arguments versus the concrete? But I think 
you point to something very important in terms of the generational mm-hmm. opportunity, as it were, because we get a lot of the buzzwords around um, radical structural reform and radical economic transformation. From our perspective, th- uh, policies that increase the control of the state aren't radical. That's simply the path we've been on, and they're going to increase the problems that we've seen. So if you can connect for people the the link between ideology and concrete policy, I, I think policies are downstream from ideology. Then you can show people if this is the fountain of the of the policy, depending on the ideology, the effects will always be the same. No matter, we can have, this isn't just a case about the current ruling party. You can have the most competent politicians and bureaucrats in charge of the NHI. It's about structures and incentives. If you put place the pot of gold there, you're going to increase the chances chances for more corruption. So I think the NHI will make something like state capture look quite paltry. Uh, maybe even will hit. Will will be in the realms of the arms deal and that kind of thing. If you if you place the incentives there for the wrong um, consequences to happen, don't be surprised when it happens and don't complain about it afterwards. I heard uh, Rosatom, who were the initiators of the nuclear project. Uh, back in, back sniffing around in South Africa, uh, if you recall, that was one project that fortunately there were enough people to, who stood up against it and uh, prevented the country from being bankrupted by a trillion rand plunder scheme. Uh, and NHI in many ways seems as though it could be with similar type of motivations, David. Oh, absolutely. You know, without doubt, I think there's, uh, the incentive is not there. And you need the leadership. Alec, you know, we've, we've both been in business. We're both exposed to business. You know, true leaders. You can't, uh, they, they, they're there. You need those kind of people to take us forward. And that happens at the top of a country as well. And uh, you can't just uh, use ideology to produce the kind of people that you need to run this. And nobody wants to do it. You know, the one thing about the ANC coming through there, they don't realize that this is an admin job. No one wants the admin job. They just want the trappings of the position, you know, that go with the manure or sitting in front of a big desk with a blue light brigade that's going to take you home, etc. Running a country, running a business actually takes a lot of time and effort. And uh, that's why I'm saying I, I just believe in the in the private sector and that we shouldn't uh, mess around with what is already working. Rather, build on on uh, you know what what we've seen in this country and what we have had in this country at one point. A cogent argument there from David Shapiro and Chris Hutting. Chris is with the Free Market Foundation. Well, thanks for being with us tonight. We look forward to being back in your company again. Tomorrow at 5.30, my apologies about uh, a little bit of um, knocking around that we had in the initial stages, but it, it happens. Uh, that's what live radio is about. But fortunately, it all settled down, and I'm, I'm sure that you, uh, like me, learnt a lot from this evening's program. We look forward to being back in your company, as I said, tomorrow. Until then, from the team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.